Thank you for joining us Around the Fire. For more information or to make a donation, please visit randomactsnetwork.com. Now, want to hear a scary story? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It was love at first sight when Peter first laid his eyes on Melody. He was walking his dog through the park on a crisp fall afternoon when they crossed paths. She wore a proper dress with puffed sleeves and a flower in her hair. Below her fashionable umbrella, a beautiful bracelet dangled from her wrist, and several rings decorated each hand. But most interesting was the black velvet ribbon tied around her neck matching her hair, overflowing from her shoulders like spilled ink. Melody felt the attention and sent a smile Peter's way. That was all the invitation he needed to introduce himself. They spent the entire afternoon circling the park, and she allowed him to walk her home. They made plans to go to the theater that weekend and dinner the following evening. Before they knew it, they were spending nearly all their time together. Each day, she looked more beautiful than the last, and each day, she wore the black velvet ribbon around her neck. The rest of her adornments would come and go, but Peter never saw her without the ribbon. As she didn't acknowledge it, he hadn't mentioned it either. But every once in a while, the curiosity became unbearable. One evening, they were together in a beautiful restaurant. She wore an elegant green velvet dress with her hair pulled up into an elegant twist. On her head, she wore a small headpiece that contained both the green and the black fabrics seamlessly uniting her attire. Finally, he felt close enough to his young love that he could inquire without offending. Placing his hand gently on hers, he finally asked the question that had been on his mind for so long. Melody, my love, I don't mean to... May I ask why you wear that ribbon around your neck? Her face darkened before she quickly smiled and shakily replied, Oh, it's just something I've always worn. Don't you like it? Of course I do. 
But I'd love to see your beautiful neck uncovered, my dear. Your sweet, soft skin. I'm sorry, my love. She took her hand from his, running the tips of her fingers along the fabric, as if consoling the ribbon itself, or confirming the bow remained tight. Will you tell me about it? The smile remained, but her eyes didn't sparkle. <laughs> There's nothing to tell. In the days that followed, he desperately tried to stop thinking about the ribbon, but it ate away at him. He kept no secrets from his darling lover, yet there was something she refused to share, a part of her that remained unknown. Shortly after they became engaged, a member of Peter's extended family passed away, and Melody left town with her partner to attend the funeral. They rented a room in a small inn, and for the first time, shared a bed. They kissed and cuddled by the light of the fire until they fell asleep. In the morning, they were quietly packing their things when Melody timidly spoke, as if the words had weighed her down all morning. My love, I'm afraid I slept quite terribly. I, I barely slept at all. Peter was taken aback, as he'd slept soundly through the night. I'm so sorry, dear. Did you not enjoy sharing the bed? Oh, I loved falling asleep in your arms, but I woke up in the middle of the night. I'd had such a terrible dream. He could tell she was truly upset and wrapped his arms around her. I was sleeping when I felt your fingers slide underneath my ribbon, trying to pull it off, picking at the knot. I begged you to stop, but you wouldn't. I could barely breathe. You were choking me. She was overwhelmed with emotion and buried her face into his chest. Peter didn't dare mention that he, too, had the very same dream. His eyes shifted from the ribbon to his hands, to the shadows on her neck around the ribbon. Marks? Or a trick of the light? Their wedding day arrived, and Peter secretly wondered if this would be the day he waited for. But as she walked down the aisle in her glowing white dress, the dark black velvet circled her neck as it always did. After several hours of eating, drinking, laughing, and dancing with friends, the couple rode in a coach to the honeymoon suite at the finest hotel in town. Both bride and groom were drunk and in love, kissing each other with no care for the coachman, ready to take each other in. Peter excused himself for a shower and his new wife made herself comfortable in their extravagant suite. He returned to find her lying across the bed in a red velvet nightgown. The dark fabric emphasized her in the most perfect places, her plump, Juicy lips curved upwards invitingly, and her eyes glimmered from between falling black locks. But still, his focus was on the ribbon, and the building lust evaporated. 
If there were ever a time he wanted to see and smell and kiss the soft skin of her neck, it would be tonight. She seemed to notice, and her smile dropped ever so slightly. He wouldn't risk spoiling the evening by asking her to remove it. He climbed into bed with her for the second time ever, and she held out her arms. He kissed her deeply and ran his hands up and down the soft fabric along her back. <laughs> Hello, husband. I love you, my dearest. I love you, darling. Their eyes locked, and the love was true, but he couldn't help it, and his attention drifted once again to the ribbon. She sighed and sat back, sinking in disappointment. <sighs> Do you want me to untie the bow? Peter lit up. He never thought the day would come when she would offer him what he desired most. After all this time, this is what you want of me? Yes, my love. Then do what you wish. With a smirk, he forcibly fingered the knot, but it was unyielding. She remained still as he fetched a pair of scissors from the desk and returned with enthusiasm, practically giddy. And in one swift move, he slid the cold metal blade between her velvety skin and the fabric and snipped. Then he screamed, stumbled back from the bed and onto the floor. As her head toppled from her shoulders and rolled across the room. The Taylor's home was a split level on a quiet street, and Laura spent most of her time downstairs. The main area consisted of the family room with a large box TV and the seating area, with one side offering a hallway to her bedroom and the laundry room, and the other consisting almost entirely of glass windows. The view was mostly of the trees leading into a forest preserve, and she loved the way the light filled the room during the day. She only wished they'd gotten around to putting up blinds for the nighttime. Laura wasn't one to scare easily, but there was always a noticeable shift when the daylight disappeared and the glass windows became a black wall. Even the dim light of a lamp and the TV's glow were enough to obscure the view on the other side. But she'd gotten used to it over time, and occasionally she was able to sneak out through the sliding doors without her parents noticing. At least, they never said anything if they had. It was a stormy night, and Laura was drinking popcorn from the bag while her family attended some event without her. She watched a terribly edited broadcast of an old horror movie and enjoyed the sounds of the rain. Just in case the power went out, she lit a candle next to her and pulled the corded phone from the wall to the side table. She began to drift to sleep, and turned off the small lamp before sinking deep into her favorite chair. Just before she'd let her eyelids fall completely, lightning struck and the yard was filled with light. Laura froze in terror as the thunder followed, but it wasn't the low rumble that gave her chills. 
now she looked again to the black wall of glass before her. But moments ago, she swore she saw someone there. She began to reach for the phone, but strained her eyes again on the spot outside. She hated the thought that she was on full display for whatever could be out there, but still she leaned forward, squinting, focusing, waiting for any noticeable movement. A fresh bolt of lightning hit close, and this time there was no mistake. A tall, hooded man stood directly on the other side of the glass. A stained ski mask on his face, in his hands, he held a long, dirty butcher knife. Laura screamed and dove under the blanket. She knew the doors were locked, but was he going to break in? Staying covered, she reached outside of the covers for the phone and dialed 911. She whispered that a man was watching her from the backyard and that she was too scared to move. The dispatcher sent a car immediately and said the best thing to do was stay where she was. After a few moments, the woman on the line asked Laura if she could check if the man was still there. She didn't want to leave the safety of the blanket, but the dispatcher promised the police were close and she needed to give them an update. Crying, Laura lowered the blanket once again. She had to wait for lightning to strike, she whispered. They sat, each listening to the other's shallow breaths as they waited on the storm. Maybe it was just a prank, the dispatcher suggested. Was there a neighbor kid nearby? There was probably nothing to worry about. But the latest flash of lightning revealed the man once again, and Laura yelped in terror. As she pulled the blanket back over herself, the phone cord tangled with the candle, knocking it to the floor. Wax splattered everywhere, and the flame went out. She remembered the remote cradled next to her in the chair, and subtly slid her hand outside of the blanket, pressing the power button. The television fell silent, and the room was pitch black. Now they were on even ground. Slowly, she lowered the blanket from her hairline, past her eyebrows, stopping at her nose. Now the entire yard was clear enough to see, and without a doubt, there was nobody there. As she noticed the first flicker of red and blue lights on the leaves, she felt a tinge of embarrassment. Had she fallen asleep? Had there been a man outside at all? There were voices along the side of the house, followed by flashlights zigzagging on the grass, and Laura finally let the blanket fall as two police officers came into view. They shined their lights around, saying something into their radio, then through the windows, finding Laura. One officer spoke into the radio as Laura thanked the dispatcher and hung up. But before she could stand, lightning filled the skies once again, illuminating both the officer's terrified face and the man's horrifying reflection in the glass from where he stood directly behind her chair. The officer's patrol car peeled out of the driveway as they rounded the corner at the front of the house. The man had gotten away, at least for now. Laura remained in her favorite chair, under her blanket, a long, deep gash across her throat. The Man in the Window 
told by Terry Lynn Hudson. Veronica Jordan was the daughter of the richest man in town, and she loved to remind those around her whenever possible. She threw an elaborate party for every holiday, but none of the local children wanted to attend. Mr. Jordan, however, was quite a powerful man, and their parents would never allow them to decline an invitation. It was Halloween night, and as always, Veronica was hosting her annual event. The local children dressed in costumes and begrudgingly marched up the hill toward the Jordan Mansion, which was always impeccably decorated. Carved pumpkins with faces of all kinds covered every surface not bursting with candy or one of many delicious-looking dishes. A massive, bubbling cauldron spouted punch in the middle of the room, and the entire first floor was covered in a low blanket of fog. After a while, the party spilled outside into the courtyard, where the children challenged each other to games and began telling stories. One local boy, Jimmy Wells, led the group to the iron fence at the edge of the yard, pressing his face between the metal bars and looking down the hill at the cemetery below. Anyone ever hear about the witch's grave? He looked back to the group, but no one seemed familiar. She used to live outside of town. Whenever a kid went missing, Everyone whispered that it was the old witch taking another victim. That's nonsense, Jimmy Wells. I've walked by that graveyard my whole life and never heard such a thing. Of course you haven't. The wicked woman died and was buried all the way back there between those two weeping willow trees. Don't be stupid. None of you actually believe this, do you? She looked at the others, searching for agreement, but they all stared back and said nothing. They didn't know you can't just bury a witch like any old person, and her soul remains trapped in the casket to this day. The worst part? She kept up her habit of snatching children. If you stand on her tombstone on Halloween night, she'll reach up from the ground and pull you under! Only a baby would believe a story like that. Jimmy smiled and stepped towards the evening's hostess. <laughs> Fine then. It's right over there. Why don't you go stand on the witch's grave? She rolled her eyes and crossed her arms. Oh, please. I dare you. I can't leave my own party. Don't be mad. But he dared her again, and the other kids joined him. She felt sick at the thought of looking like a chicken. Fine. I'll go. But when I get back, you have to give me half of your candy. Jimmy laughed and pulled a small pocket knife from his pants, checking to make sure none of the adults noticed. <laughs> Fine, but you have to prove it. Stick this into the grass next to the grave and we'll see if it's there in the morning. She took the knife and with a loud, dramatic sigh, snuck herself out of the side gate. 
The children watched as she walked down the hill and toward the cemetery gates. She looked back, as if for one final confirmation that she had to go through with it, and stepped under the archway, entering the graveyard. Within moments, her shape disappeared from the children's view into the dark fog. She felt the temperature drop, and suddenly, very, very alone. I don't believe that stupid story. The light of the moon grew dimmer as the fog grew thicker, and she marched on toward the back of the cemetery with determination. Finally, she saw the tombstone underneath the weeping willow trees. She stepped on top of it and braced herself, but of course nothing happened, and she laughed out loud. How stupid of Jimmy to give away half of his candy for something so simple. She plunged the pocket knife into the grass and attempted to step off the grave when she felt a strong tug at the back of her dress. Her eyes widened and she tried to move again, but couldn't. She was trapped in the grip of the witch's hand. The mansion fell silent as Veronica's piercing scream echoed across the skies. The entire party, servants and all, barreled down the hill towards the sound. It was the children who made it to the Weeping Willows first. There, they found Veronica lying across the grave. She was frozen, with her mouth crookedly open, eyes wide, and hands clenched into grasping claws. By her feet, Jimmy's pocket knife was stuck in the grass. Without realizing it, she'd stabbed through the fabric of her dress. Veronica had died of fright, but it was only the knife that held her. Timothy was deeply asleep when his buddy shook him awake, standing over him in the bottom bunk. He looked at his watch. It was shortly after 3 a.m. But at scout camp, you couldn't go anywhere without a buddy. If Timothy's buddy had to go to the bathroom, they both went together. He climbed out of bed and pulled his boots over his pajama bottoms. Grabbing his lantern, he followed his buddy out of the cabin and into the cold, rainy night. They didn't talk. It was only the end of the first week, and they didn't know much about each other. They both seemed to want to get back to bed as soon as possible. 
Timothy waited under the awning, shivering for several minutes. He kicked open the door and yelled inside, but his buddy didn't answer. Finally, he had enough, and he walked in, plugging his nose. The bathroom was dark, but Timothy's dim lantern showed that the stall door at the very end was closed. He yelled out, but once again, nothing. Timothy walked slowly to the end of the bathroom, jumping with a clash of thunder, and knocked on the stall door. He called his buddy's name, but there was no response. Timothy pushed on the door, but it was locked. Frustrated, he began to get down on his knees to look under the door, when finally he heard his buddy's voice. Almost done, he said quietly. Timothy fetched his lantern and walked back to the bathroom door, opening it up to breathe in the damp air from outside. He asked his buddy to hurry up and stepped back into the night. But several more minutes passed, and he still didn't come outside. Having enough, Timothy walked back in straight to the end of the room and pounded hard on the door. He yelled for the kid to hurry up. How much sleep was he supposed to lose for this? The buddy was silent. Probably embarrassed, Timothy thought. Or maybe he fell asleep on the toilet. He warned him that he was going to look under the door if he didn't get a response. And hearing nothing, he did. First, just bending over. But he only saw the foot of the toilet bowl no legs or shoes, so he pulled his head underneath the door, stretching to look up, to find the stall totally empty. He climbed to his feet, turning around to unlatch the door, but it wasn't even locked. It had to be a prank, he thought, so he left the stall, forcing open the doors on the rest of the toilets, but the entire bathroom was empty, and there wasn't any way out except the door that Timothy stood right by the entire time. He pinched himself, but it wasn't a dream. This is stupid. I'm going back, he said. Screw the buddy system. With a flicker, his lantern went out, and he stood there, frozen in the darkness, when from the last stall at the end, he heard, (laughs) I'm not your buddy. Lightning flashed, and Timothy swore he saw the shape of a person. He sprinted from the bathroom, slipping and soaking himself with mud. And making it back to the cabin, he made no effort not to wake the others. He pulled the chain and the light bulb hanging from the ceiling came to life. The only empty bed was his own. The others were a mix of confused and annoyed, and a few continued sleeping. Timothy decided he didn't want to talk about it, so he took off his wet clothes, climbed into bed, and stared at the ceiling until it was time for breakfast. He asked his buddy about it as soon as he could in the morning, but the boy insisted he never woke him up the night before. A counselor who overheard the conversation pulled Timothy aside and asked him to share his experience. As he did, the counselor went pale. He whispered in response that the same thing had happened to him the year before, when he'd gone to the bathroom alone, as counselors were allowed to do. And then he stopped himself, seeming to choke. But Timothy could tell there was something he wasn't saying. He prodded, and at first his elder wouldn't budge, but finally he relented, though he asked Timothy not to tell the others for fear of scaring them. It was opening week, ten years ago, when a camper killed himself in the very last stall.
Cecily was a beautiful young woman nearing graduation, and she was not beautiful by chance. Cecily's appearance and popularity were her greatest sources of pride. She felt great pressure to be perfect, and all of this stemmed from her demanding mother's high expectations. Cecily's mother was a beautiful woman herself, but she frequently criticized her daughter and harshly pushed her to excel. No matter how well Cecily performed in school or socially, her mother made her feel inadequate. One morning, Cecily noticed a small red spot on her cheek. With a dab of makeup, it was gone, and she forgot about it until the following day. When she looked in the mirror that morning, she saw it had grown nearly three times in size overnight, and her skin was tight and dry. She gingerly touched it and winced with pain. She knew she'd have to ask her mother about it. Cecily may have been missing both of her eyes based on her mother's face when she saw her. She tried to play it off somewhat as Cecily's eyes welled with tears. It's a boil, darling, her mother said. You haven't been washing your face well enough. Cecily begged her mother to stay home from school, but the woman refused. She spent the entire day trying to hide the hideous boil on her face, feeling the eyes of her classmates on her at every second. The following morning, the boil was even larger in size and the entire side of Cecily's face ached with a heavy pain. She went to her mother again, who looked at her with great disgust. Perhaps I was wrong, she said. It's not a boil, but a spider bite. It will heal by itself if you don't touch it, she said. And if you tidied your room more often, you wouldn't have to worry about such pests. Cecily tried to tell her mother how painful it was and that she needed to see a doctor, but the woman refused. If you pick at it, you'll have a horrible scar in the middle of your face, she said. Can you imagine anything worse? That night, Cecily took a long, warm bath to try and alleviate the discomfort. She soaked a cloth in the water and pressed it gently to her face, wincing but enjoying the heat. But as soon as she felt a bit of relief, the boil began to itch. And though she wanted to scratch it, she remembered what her mother had said. But as she dried herself off, the itching grew unbearable. She applied a bit of pressure, but it didn't help. Her skin was literally crawling, and she clenched her jaw and fists with all her strength to prevent herself from digging away at the damned spot. Cecily stepped in front of the mirror once again, wiping the tears from her eyes. Was it the welling of her eyes? Or had she just seen the slightest movement from the red spot? The pressure in her cheek only grew. If she was gentle, she told herself, she could help it to burst on its own. But as the unbearable, prickly tickling continued, she cared less and less about hypothetical scars. Finally, she couldn't take it any longer, and she pressed on each side of the boil with a single finger. Now, she was certain that it was moving, and she tried to guess what gross liquid would erupt from the swelling volcano on her face. She pressed a bit harder, and the pain throbbed through her temples. But she just had to... Splat! Horrifying brown goo 
splattered across the mirror as the boil burst open and a horde of venomous spiders poured out. Cecily tried to scream and brush them off, but they clung to her skin, biting her and filling her mouth, gagging and choking her. She stumbled from the bathroom and collapsed on the hallway floor, her body convulsing from the venom coursing through her veins. The spiders crawled under her eyelids and up her nose, filling her ears and burrowing into her brain, while some continued through the hallway and her mother's room. When the woman awoke from her nap and sat at her vanity, she felt a bit of soreness on her cheek. Looking closer at the reflection of her beautiful face, she noticed a small red spot. Mr. Rivers was known for his temper and for taking it out on his students. No one dared misbehave in his classroom after rumors spread of his horrible punishments from back in the day. He once forced a boy to hold his nose in the corner of the room for so long, he fainted and cracked his head open. None of the other students dared say anything. Another kid had to stay after class and rewrite sentences thousands of times. Mr. Rivers went home for the night. But the boy was too scared to move without completing the task, and he stayed in the desk for two days straight. He didn't speak to anyone else again, and left the school at the end of the year. But the worst tale was a young girl who snuck out of class one afternoon, enraging Mr. Rivers. The following day, he locked her in a closet. Her friends stayed after school to set her free, but he guided them out of the building and left with the keys and the building was empty for the whole weekend. 
no one saw or heard from her ever again. Mr. Rivers didn't see any point in respecting his inferiors, and he refused to learn his students' names. Instead, they were each assigned a number on the first day, which is how he'd preferred to them for the rest of the semester. Because of the ever-growing school enrollment, his class was almost completely full with 30 total students. One evening, after an especially infuriating day, he sat at his desk grading papers, most of them failing. An attendant from the office came by with a note, saying they'd received a message for him. It read, Your cruelty is self-serving. Try teaching with kindness. Number 31. (laughs) I have no student 31. He sat there, staring at the note. He knew there was no student 31, and the thought that someone in his class was pranking him only infuriated him more. The following day, he reprimanded each of his classes, threatening all kinds of punishments if the student behind the prank didn't come forward. Nothing did any good, and nobody had anything to say. Then the only fair thing to do, he said, is give everyone detention. And he spent the evening supervising all of his students working in silence until the building closed. The students had gone back to their dorms, and he was preparing to leave. As he put on his jacket, he noticed a paper on his desk he hadn't seen before. It read, It's not too late for you, number 31. He looked around the empty room and tore into the hallway, desperate to catch whoever left the note, and spent the following day making even more severe threats than before. Getting nowhere, he dismissed his classes and worked in a state of rage throughout the day in the quiet classroom. Several hours passed as he graded the same few papers, unable to focus, and he rubbed his sore eyes in frustration. It was time to call it a night. But when he stood up, he nearly screamed. He'd been alone for hours in that room, but now, behind him on the blackboard, was a sprawling message written in chalk. Don't turn your back on me. He stumbled from the room, disoriented and choking on the air, and fled from the building. The next day, the students learned he'd be taking a week of medical leave, which turned into two weeks, and then a month, and finally, permanent retirement. No one at the school ever saw Mr. Rivers again. The following summer, the gutted classroom was being remodeled, and the wall that held the blackboard was torn down. Stuffed inside, construction workers found the long, mummified body of a young girl.
It was the evening of the high school dance, and Catherine was wearing the dress she'd worked on all year. She didn't have the money to buy something new like the other girls in school, but her talented hands created something much better, something one of a kind. The red, sparkling fabric was stunning against her skin, and she knew her crush, Matthew, would simply have to take notice. But after she'd blushed her cheeks and straightened her hair, she was greeted by her mother in the kitchen, wearing a heavy scowl. "'You're not going to the dance,' she said. "'Dancing is for the devil's children, and you dress in the color of sin.' Go upstairs at once, change your clothes and wipe your face. Then come down and make us something to eat. Her mother returned to the front of the house, where she was likely reading or sewing, and Catherine stomped up the stairs to her room. She told her mother all about the dance, even showing her a glimpse of the fabric the day she brought it home. But sometimes it was like she had two different mothers entirely, and tonight she had the mean one. She dampened a cloth and raised it to her cheek, but paused. It wasn't fair. She'd waited years for this dance and spent hours on her dress. And who knows who Matthew would dance with if she wasn't there. For the first time in her life, she decided to defy her mother. She gathered her things, walked down the stairs and out of the house without saying a word. With a burst of adrenaline, Catherine sprinted towards the school gym. The dance had already started, and she wanted to enjoy every moment possible. She could hear the music from outside as she neared the doors and finally entered the building. In a fantastic moment, it felt like every single person in the room stopped and looked at her standing there in her shimmering dress. She was so used to going unseen. She looked through the crowd for Matthew, but couldn't find him. Her girlfriends were all on the dance floor with their dates, so Catherine stood near the punch bowl as she continued looking around the room for her crush. A few other boys came up to her and asked her to dance, and she bathed in the euphoria of turning them down. After all, she was waiting for someone. Finally, she spotted Matthew with a group of his friends, and their eyes locked. Her breath caught in her throat. But this was the moment she had been waiting for. His eyes remained on her as she made her way in his direction. She could tell he was shocked by the beauty of her dress. But when she asked him to dance, he turned the color of the fabric. The others around him laughed, teasing him for being asked to dance by a girl. Catherine stepped to the shadows of the gym, suddenly regretting the choices that led here. She'd never admit it, but she'd made the dress for him. Now it was for nothing, and she couldn't bear to think of what punishment awaited at home. From the darkness of the crowd, a gorgeous young man appeared next to her. She'd never seen him before. He had shiny jet black hair, a perfectly tailored suit, and piercing eyes that captivated. And he turned to Catherine and asked her to dance. She couldn't even manage to say yes, she only held out her hand for the taking. He led her to the dance floor, and the music suddenly erupted in volume. They danced together, and she moved with an ease she didn't recognize. She'd always loved to dance, but never had much talent for it. She followed the beautiful man's lead, very aware of the hundreds of eyes on them. The man spun her around and around, 
The others in the gym clapped and cheered, and he spun her faster. She began to lose her breath and tried to step out of the spin, but he spun her even faster. The floor seemed to melt beneath her feet. She tried to focus on her own limbs, but couldn't. It was as if they moved on their own accord, and her feet grew hotter and hotter, and yet he spun her faster. The crowd cheered and whooped and applauded, and finally she was spinning so fast that a cloud of dust formed around them so thick that they could no longer be seen by the crowd. The music returned to its normal level, and the dust fell to the floor, revealing the beautiful man standing there. But Catherine, nowhere to be seen. He took a bow for the crowd, and, fully enamored, they applauded with vigor. And then he disappeared too. The devil had come for one of his children and spun her all the way to hell. Just right through here. We're almost there. Carol and Harry excitedly entered the doors of Haddington Memorial Hospital to find the building mostly quiet. The bulk of the county was now routed to a newer medical building in Carpenter City, 20 minutes away without accounting for traffic. But this young couple planned to deliver their firstborn at Haddington Memorial, where they each began their own lives a few decades earlier, back when every room and hallway was bursting with patients and staff. The birth went smoothly, and Carol lovingly watched Harry nod off in the chair as the head nurse finished cleaning their fresh little one. The old woman wore a tight bun and cartoon print scrubs and hummed a bit to herself as she worked. She passed the baby to Carol, who sniffed the baby girl's warm head, adorned in a pink ribbon, and held her by the light of the flickering TV in the corner. A loud snore from Harry pulled Carol back from drifting off, and despite her best efforts to wake her husband, he continued to sleep like he'd been the one in labor. She pressed the call button for the nurse. A younger woman with long brunette hair came in quickly, shutting off the call button. Her uniform was closer to something like a candy striper would wear, and her clean tennis shoes lightly squeaked as she walked. She gently lifted the baby from its mother's arms and offered to take her to the nursery so Carol could rest, but the new mother wanted to keep her baby close and declined gratefully. The nurse lingered for a moment before she put the child in its basket and slipped from the room quietly. Carol had almost fallen asleep when the older woman knocked gently on the doorframe. Need something, hon? She asked. Carol thanked her groggily but said that they'd been taken care of. A few hours later, Carol woke to a shape standing over her. Harry was gone from his chair, but it wasn't him. As her eyes came into focus, she recognized the brunette nurse from earlier. In her hand, she held a large syringe, heading towards her baby's flesh. 
What are you doing? She asked. The startled nurse jabbed the poor baby's arm just enough to break the skin, letting the needle fall to the floor. She took the child from her basket, calming her, and apologized profusely. Hepatitis, the nurse said with an awkward and hesitant smile. Sorry to wake you, ma'am. They've got to get the shot within 24 hours. Let me have her, please? Carol asked. I really upset the little thing, the young woman said, ignoring her and rocking with the baby towards the door. Please give her to me now. The nurse stopped, patting the cooing baby and twisted her neck so she faced Carol. Are you sure you wouldn't like me to take her to the nursery? She asked again. Carol looked at the dot of blood on her poor baby's arm. Let's start with a bandage. Give her here, she stated with irritation. With a large smile, the nurse obliged and stepped from the room. Carol squinted at the clock. It was just after 1 a.m. Harry returned a bit later with candy bar and soda, settling back into his chair and attempting to help his wife calm the baby, who continued to cry. They waited and waited and waited, but the nurse didn't return with a bandage. When Carol pressed the call button again, a small red light remained dark. She pressed it a few more times, but it seemed to have lost power. She asked Harry to go find someone. The nursery was starting to sound like a good plan after all. Harry returned with the older woman who scooped the child up in her arms, quickly quieting her. Carol asked for a bandage, complaining about the other nurse. The woman offered a confused chuckle. Can't be surprised, I suppose, she said. Most everyone was either let go or moved to the new building downtown. The few of us left are stuck running around like chickens with their heads cut off. With that, she passed the baby to its father and stepped out for a bandage. As soon as the child was in Harry's arms, she began screaming again. Harry looked at his wife with desperation, but Carol was equally distraught. Her head was heavy and throbbing. She needed silence or something strong. But now it was the old woman who didn't return. They waited for nearly 20 minutes before Carol asked Harry to step out and find her. I'll be right back. Just try to relax. The television was still flickering and it was nearly 2 a.m., After more time passed, the brunette reappeared in the doorway holding two items, the now unnecessary bandage and a second syringe. No, please, not right now. She's finally quieting down, Carol pleaded. The friendly smile reappeared on the nurse's face. This one's for you, Mama. You both deserve to rest up tonight. Within seconds, whatever was added to Carol's IV transported her feet first into ice water. But her pores took in the cold and turned it to warmth and spread it through her sprawling veins like melting butter. The nurse plucked the baby from Carol's arms, now impossibly heavy, and moved across the room and out the door in a blur. The new mother was already too sedated to respond. She shook her head and took a deep breath, drawing all of her strength to press the call button, which lit up immediately. She watched the foggy shapes dancing on the TV as she waited, and finally the head nurse returned with a bandage. Lots of noise coming from this room, 
She said with a sweet grin that crinkled her face endearingly. You need something? Carol was fading fast. My head was all she could say. The woman shuffled to the foot of the bed and took a seat, placing her warm hand on Carol's shin. It weighed a million pounds. It'll be that way for a bit, but you'll get the hang of it all before you know it. There are lots of things that help them settle down. Mine always loved to be carried around. Works like a charm. Looks like she's gone for a walk with Daddy right now. She looked at the empty crib. I'm sure that little angel is fast asleep in her father's arms. Just let me know if you... As she looked back at Carol, she noticed the confusion in her drooping eyes. Honey, are you feeling okay? Carol wanted nothing more than to give in to the drugs, but she took another deep breath and said, Not Harry. But the other woman didn't hear. What was that, hon? Carol needed a moment to find the energy to speak again. Other nurse. The low throbbing returned to the back of Carol's skull as she pressed herself to stay awake and waves of nausea were getting worse. Why don't I go and find them for you, huh? That'll make you feel better. Finally, Harry reappeared in the room. I can't find a damn soul in this place. He began before noticing the nurse's presence. But she hadn't heard him. She only noticed that there was no baby in his arms. In one second, the blood drained from her face. Where's the baby? Harry asked. Carol was nearly unconscious. Her voice was low and flat. The other nurse. In the nursery. She said. The old woman stood up without saying a word, removed the phone from its cradle on the wall and dialed two numbers. She mumbled into the receiver as Harry took his wife's hands into his own. Did someone give you some? I think she's been drugged. He looked to the nurse who had just hung up the receiver. The woman was trembling and audibly swallowed the lump in her throat. Sweetheart, she said, eyes filling with tears. The babies always stay with their parents. We don't have a nursery. A security guard entered the room as Harry shouted something, but Carol no longer understood. She could see only the blurry shapes of movement around her and hear the echoing cries of her husband screaming as she drowned into herself. The hospital was locked down and searched, but no traces of the mysterious nurse or newborn were located. Once the old nurse was cleared to leave, she walked softly through the automatic doors and towards her car in the back of the lot. Her breath lingered in front of her like mist. It had snowed overnight before chilling over, and there was a thin layer of frost across the lot. She noticed her footprints behind her, adding the first blemishes to an otherwise unbothered corner. A ray of sun poked through the clouds, and she caught a glimmer just a few feet away. There was another set of tracks in the parking lot, after all, heading from the building to the edge of the asphalt and disappearing into the grass. The woman's eyes continued towards the trees in the distance, where a tiny bit of color stood out. Among the leafless branches and dead plants was a bright, shiny, pink ribbon 
waving in the wind.